Hello, it's Friday, October the 6th. We're well into Halloween season, and this is the fifth episode of the Abominable Dr. Walsh podcast. It's been a few weeks since I, well, actually several weeks since episode four, which was not the original plan when I started up the podcast again. My original intent, uh, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, was to record an episode at least once a week or at least every two weeks. Unfortunately, work just got really busy, uh, so life tends to get in the way. Now, I've also switched up where and what I'm using to do the podcast, so I'm in a much more professional podcast setting. So hopefully no uh, background noise or distractions in the background. And I've switched it up in using you know slightly more sophisticated podcast software, specifically Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg Pro. There will be a bit of a learning curve. The content will remain the same, and hopefully uh, a good enough quality that you'll come back for episode six, episode seven, etc. But uh, I'm sure the learning curve won't be too steep. For this week's podcast episode, what I wanted to take a look at was the uh, films of Rob Zombie. So if you're a horror movie fan, you're probably obviously familiar with Rob Zombie, uh, who got a start as a heavy metal musician and white zombie in the early 1990s. Uh, before moving on to a solo career with Hellbilly Deluxe in 1998. His first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, produced and uh, filmed in 2000, not released until spring of 2003. And of course, Zombie's filmography includes The Devil's Rejects, most recently last year, the Netflix released The Munsters. I mean, really what I want to focus on is, and I'm borrowing this quote from someone, and I apologize because I really don't know who said it, but uh, the person who described Rob Zombie as the best filmmaker to not make uh, a a good movie. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but Zombie's movies are very much flawed. Each movie probably has its own set of fans, uh, but I definitely have kind of an opinion on what makes his movies work and some of the flaws that repeat and and limit what he's putting out, particularly in his last few movies. So that's really going to be the focus of this episode's podcast is taking a look at Rob Zombie's filmography, you know, what works in his movies, but those kind of consistent inherent problems that are putting something of, in my opinion, a bit of a glass ceiling on the quality of movies that he's releasing. Uh, So that's what we're going to look at. And without further ado, let's just dive right into it. I guess the first thing I'll start off by noting is I'm a big fan of Rob Zombie's music and his movies. Even the movies of zombies that you know I, I think are flawed or maybe not among his better movies, I still find myself going back and rewatching. The best example was uh, the 2016 movie 31. It, it's there's a lot of things wrong with the movie itself, but I do occasionally find myself going back to Zombie's work. I don't know if I would use the word uh, comfort uh, films because that's probably not the best way to describe Zombie's uh, filmography, but there's something about his movies that's inherently watchable, even if some of the efforts are a bit flawed. The other thing I'll just quickly note is when I'm talking about Zombie's output as a filmmaker, I'm not talking about the concert film, the zombie horror picture show from 2014, and I'm not talking about the uh, animated film, The Haunted World of El Super Bisto. I'm talking about the movies from House of a Thousand Corpses up to last year's uh, Netflix movie, The Monsters. Best place to start, House of a Thousand Corpses. 
I, you know, actually do literally remember the first time I realized Zombie was actually making a movie, which I thought was pretty exciting because who better to make a horror movie than, than Rob Zombie? Uh, and that was uh, when I was living in Vancouver. I think this would have been October. It was fall of 2000, going to see The Exorcist that had been re-released at that time with uh, footage that they had remastered, I think, from the director's cut. And one of the trailers that opened up the movie was a very short, probably a minute or less, uh, teaser trailer for Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. If you haven't seen the teaser trailer, you can probably go to Lionsgate's YouTube page or just type in House of a Thousand Corpses teaser trailer and you'll find it. If you have seen it, you probably remember it being pretty effective. Uh, my The takeaway I had from it was, I've got to see this movie. I want to see what Zombie does uh, as a horror filmmaker. Because arguably there really is you could make the argument there aren't many filmmakers in the horror genre that know the genre quite as well as, as Rob Zombie does. He knows horror movies. Now, if you recall, that was fall 2000. I didn't actually see, uh, see House of a Thousand Corpses for almost three years. I remember renting it on, yes, uh, DVD from a, a video store in April of 2003. The movie's release had been delayed probably for a variety of reasons. My my first reactions to watching House of a Thousand Corpses, and, and like I said at the outset of this particular section of the podcast, it's it's not a perfect movie. It's it's pretty flawed and I could pretty quickly you know rhyme off what I thought didn't work about the film, but it's also a movie I go back and rewatch every once in a while. It's clearly a homage to Toby Hooper's uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And as a first-time filmmaker, you can kind of see that Zombie has a little bit of trouble distinguishing between doing a homage or a tribute and recycling things that have been done in the past and, and probably done better. He's also tapping into much like, say, an Eli Roth or a Quentin Tarantino. Zombie is very much tapping into a 70s style of filmmaking. Uh, the movie looks a lot like the kind of exploitation grindhouse horror movies that you could see kind of on the double bills if you lived in a bigger city and those old independent movie theaters. Uh, the violence very much is reminiscent of films that were coming out at that time, like Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, I Drink Your Blood, and some of the later 70s films like The Driller Killer, uh, even the early 1980s movie Maniac. That's definitely the approach, uh, but very much... Uh, using the formula or template that Toby Hooper used for, for Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, interesting characters, obviously, uh, the Firefly clan, we want to see them in another film. Uh, great use of, of character actors like Sid Haig, Karen Black, and uh, Bill Mosley. And in terms of uh, Sherry Moon Zombie's performance, oftentimes uh, fans and critics like to pick on a little bit Zombie's tendency to cast her in, in big roles. This is one case where the casting of Sherry Moon Zombie works. She's, she's quite good as Baby Firefly. She fits the role quite well. It would be hard to imagine somebody else in it. Like a lot of Zombies movies, uh, there's, a, there's certainly things you can quite quickly pick out as not working very well. So on the one hand, Zombie, again, he knows his way around a camera and he knows his way around a horror movie. And the, the aesthetics in some of the films, including one scene, uh, it's the scene where the, the sheriff and deputy arrive uh, to the Firefly family home. And it's a, a pan shot of the deputy uh, before Otis Firefly kind of ex shoots him execution style. Uh, a great use of music and Zombie is one of those filmmakers who knows how to pick the right song for the right moment. It's quite a well uh, film scene, uh, how it works. It really draws up the tension and suspense, which is not something Zombie is always very good at. But you can really see that Zombie has a flair uh, for, for filmmaking. Even the 
I mean, one of my immediate problems, aside from the fact that it's somewhat derivative of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my other kind of big problem was narrative cohesion. The movie is for quite a bit of it quite grounded, and the final act kind of descends into this uh, surrealistic supernatural horror where the stories of Dr. Satan appear to be true, uh, whether that's the intent or it's supposed to be a nightmare sequence, it's hard to tell. Uh, to some extent, Zombie get, gets a pass on that, or at least gets away with it, because again, he's tapping into a style of filmmaking, a, a narrative approach that probably wasn't uncommon for that time period, the 70s. So you, you could make the argument that he's really just making the kind of movie that he wants to make, that this is the style, this is the narrative approach to it. Uh, there are some other things on the, some of the editing, you could tell zombie kind of cut his teeth, uh, filmmaking wise on making music videos because house of a thousand corpses oftentimes has a, a music video feel to it. It's a lot of frenetic editing. Uh, the asides that characters do sometimes really don't add anything to the story and are a bit distracting, but you can, you can kind of see the potential that's inherent in what zombies doing with house of a thousand corpses as well. Now, of course, a few years later in 2006, Zombie returns to the Firefly clan and he makes what's still probably considered his best movie as a filmmaker. If you went to Rotten Tomatoes, I think The Devil's Rejects, which I'm not sure if it's on the fresh side of ratings or not, but it's definitely the movie I think that critics and most fans agree is his best work to date. Zombie kind of sets aside uh, some of that, the, the supernatural ending, and really largely ignores it. Instead of what he delivers is a very grounded, intense, you know, and disturbing uh, road trip horror movie that focuses on really the three characters that audiences probably like the most from the original film. That's Otis Firefly, Captain Spaulding, and Baby Firefly. Uh, what you get is, again, a, a really intense, uh, uncompromising, which is a good word to describe a lot of zombies' work. It's an uncompromising uh, horror film it's again probably his best work you do see uh some of the same problems so again on one hand zombie kind of smooths out some of the filmmaking mistakes he was making in house of a thousand corpses he kind of ditches those kind of character asides the editing isn't quite as as hectic as it was in house of a thousand corpses he he managed to manages to create what i would describe as sustained long sustained moments of tension and discomfort on the other hand, again, zombie narratively, The Devil's Rejects isn't an entirely a cohesive movie. I can recall seeing it in theaters with my sister, who's also a big horror movie fan, where at one point, at about the two-third points of the movie, she turned to me and whispered, is he asking us to sympathize with these characters now? Are they supposed to be the good guys? And you know, while maybe zombie doesn't quite double down as much as the recent Saw 10, where it looks like the filmmakers just decided that uh, uh, that Jigsaw was no longer an anti-hero. They just presented him as an outright hero. Devil, the Devil's Rejects does kind of shift a bit and it tries to elicit sympathy from its three very much depraved characters. Uh, how much that works or not, I mean, they do it by juxtaposing with a character that you're supposed to dislike, although it is hard to 
take issue with the uh, motivations of a man whose brother was brutally murdered in the previous movie. It still works. Zombie has, again, has a flair for putting uncompromising violence up on the screen. He has a flair for how he uses music. The final uh, scene using uh, Leonard Skinner's music is a, a great finale to the movie. And the opening using Midnight Rider uh, is a great use of music as well. I mean, Zombie definitely took huge leaps and bounds with The Devil's Rejects. The next chapter of Rob Zombie's filmmaking career, to some extent, when he decided to remake John Carpenter's Halloween, he really wasn't going to win no matter what he did. Um, it was a bold decision to do it. It probably set him up for failure, uh, regardless, again, regardless of what he did or didn't do. Uh, anyone remaking a classic horror film like the uh, like John Carpenter's Halloween is, is going to face instant criticism. You're not going to make everybody anybody happy, let alone everyone happy. And that's kind of the problem that Zombie faced. His Halloween is, uh, he makes a couple of interesting creative choices, and really it's, it's a case of two different movies kind of stitched together into one. The first half of the movie, if it wasn't called Halloween, would actually be a pretty compelling look at the evolution of a serial killer. It's, again, it's pretty harrowing, it's uncomfortable, it's unrelenting. The performances are grimy but good. Uh, if the again, if the movie hadn't been called Halloween, and that had been the direction that Zombie had uh, taken for the entirety of the movie, it might have been much better received. Unfortunately, it's a remake of Halloween, and one of the things that made Michael Myers and still makes Michael Myers a compelling and consistently frightening character is the idea that we really do not know why or understand why he does the things he does or why he's the way he is. That mystery, that lack of understanding, the, the possibility that he is really just evil and what he does is entirely random is what makes the character and the movie itself frightening. By electing to delve into the psychology of the character, to some extent what Zombie has done is uh, thrown the curtain uh, and shown you the man uh, behind the curtain uh, and it really undone what made Halloween an effective horror movie. Again, if it was called something else, it would work. Then the back half of Halloween, Zombie is kind of handcuffed to the story. And what we get in the second half of Halloween is really the original Halloween condensed into one hour, largely playing out the way it did originally, uh, the, the first movie did. So to some extent, Zombie wasn't going to win no matter what choice he made. Now, when two years later, he released Halloween 2, his sequel, it was kind of uh, a blank canvas, so to speak, for him to work on and really make the character and the movie his own. Halloween 2 is really exemplifies, and I'll come back to it at the end when I do my big picture uh, take on the movie, but it really exemplifies a lot of the things that Zombie does wrong. Just uh, for brevity here in this section, Halloween 2 is an ugly-looking movie uh, that's pretty sadistic in its its presentation of violence. It's hard to watch oftentimes. 
It's a movie that is filled with a lot of very much unlikable characters, with the exception uh, of Danielle Harris and Brad Dourif as Sheriff uh, Lee Brackett. They give fairly good sympathetic performances. Everyone else in the film, it feels like you're trapped in some kind of hillbilly hell for most of the movie. Uh, in addition, there's you do see Flair Zombie in the first scene where he kind of riffs a bit on the original Halloween 2, which is, in my opinion, an underrated sequel in the Halloween franchise. I actually quite like the original Halloween 2, although it's pretty easy to point out one big flaw, that is it's the world's most understaffed hospital in horror movie history. The first 15, 10 to 15 minutes of Zombies Halloween 2 actually looked like it had a lot of potentials. Uh, and that opening scene that takes place in an isolated hot and unstaffed hospital, Zombie, Zombie actually manages to, do, manages to do something he doesn't consistently do or even try in a lot of his movies. He actually crafts a bit of suspense, a bit of edge of your seat thrills, um, uh, some tension that's removed from just you know graphic violence. But the rest of the movie lapses into a lot of the mistakes that Zombie tends to make. From a narrative perspective, uh, Halloween 2 is an extremely incoherent movie. There's elements that tie in that are more grounded, and then there's elements that feel somewhat supernatural. It retcons or ignores a lot of what he did in the first movie. Uh, you know, he tries to tap into some you know Freudian psychoanalysis with you know, the dreams and images of white horses. That is interesting and might actually be one of the more interesting aspects aspects of the movie. But it, it's kind of an idea that gets lost by the end. Uh, and again, Halloween Two is a pretty ugly looking movie that's going to have a limited appeal outside of diehard zombie fans it's probably going to be too much for the average horror movie fan Over Zombie's next few films, he takes, in my opinion, a big leap forward into filmmaking. And then you know, for one step forward that he takes, he takes two big ones back and then takes a giant leap backwards with Last Year's The Monsters. Uh, a lot of people didn't like uh, Lords of Salem that came out, I believe, in 2014, if I'm correct. Uh, whereas I think it's actually... 2012, my apologies. So Lords of Salem was Zombie's follow-up to his Halloween movies. Um, Halloween 2 was not successful. It didn't do as well at the box office as his first Halloween remake, and it probably put uh, kind of the kibosh on a plan, any planned trilogy. But Zombie followed it up and went into an entirely different direction. I, I'm actually a big fan of Lords of Salem. Uh, if he's riffing on Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in House of a Thousand Corpses, Lords of Salem finds Zombie uh, looking to mimic or tap into the same style as, as people like Ken Russell, who made uh, the 1970s The Devils, The Lair of the White uh, Worm, and uh, maybe a, li a little bit of even Stanley Kubrick and The Shining vibes are, are present here. Lords of Salem is creatively, you know, it's a step forward for Zombie. He's, it's a consistently creepy, unnerving movie. Uh, the atmosphere that sometimes is absent from his other films is present in this movie. He's actually somewhat restrained in certain moments. And yes, the the, the climax of the film, uh, Zombie kind of indulges as, as he tends to do with a lot of graphic imagery. 
but even in leaving things kind of ambiguous by the end about you know what actually happened adds a bit of Lords of Salem lingers with you long after the, the credits roll, which is not oftentimes necessarily the case with zombies movies. Creat creatively, he is, in my opinion, with Lords of Salem stretching his wings, and it hits uh, more often than he misses. Unfortunately, after that, that his next two movies, in my opinion, just take steps backwards. So in 2016, he does X. It sounds exactly, or I'm, I'm sorry, he does 31, and it, it is exactly the kind of movie that you would think Rob Zombie would make. So its entire premise of uh, carnival workers on Halloween Eve in the 1970s being abducted by people dressed as killer clowns and, and forced to participate in some sadistic game of survival is exactly what you would think Rob Zombie would make. And he's absolutely the right filmmaker to, to make that kind of movie. The premise is fascinating. It's, it's cast with all the kind of familiar faces of B-movie actors that you recognize from different movies, even if you can't name them. It has everything you would expect from a Rob Zombie movie, except it just doesn't work. Uh, I think this was a crowdfunded movie, and a lot of times it really does look like it. It's dark. It's hard to see. Uh, Zombie, who in other movies showed a really good, you know, uh, a lot of confidence, even in his early movies with behind the camera and filming action and being able to capture what was happening on screen. It, oftentimes, it's really hard to to understand what's happening. The performances are pretty mixed. Some of the uh, the heads, that's what the killer clowns were referred to, some are quite intimidating, others come off as unintentionally funny. Uh, Richard Brake is probably the best part of the movie as Doomhead. He brings uh, a, an absolute intensity to the role. He's every bit as scary as the Fireflies are in The, uh, the Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses. There are, of course, moments where zombie overindulges and includes scenes that just seem to be there for the sake of having something to shock and offend people uh, that just do not work in the overall narrative. Uh, there's great use of music, uh, although, again, the finale feels unnecessary and it's, it's pretty dissatisfying. When he moves on and gives us Three from Hell, which came out, I believe, uh, three years after 31. So in 2019, we get a belated sequel, uh, a trilogy capper. For the Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses, there was lots of interesting directions Zombie could have chosen to go on with this movie. So I was curious as to whether or not he was going to tap back into some of the more supernatural storytelling that defined the the final third of House of a Thousand Corpses, and maybe literally what we would get is you know this trio of killers who have been spit out or rejected by hell itself. Instead, Zombie does a lazy retcon. Uh, the movie is also hurt by the fact that Sid Haig was extremely ill at the time of filming. They bring Richard Brake in, who's, who's fantastic in the movie, but the biggest problem with Three from Hell is it really just doesn't add anything to House of a Thousand Corpses or The Devil's Rejects. It just feels like more of the same, except not quite as effective, not quite as good, and kind of lazy. It's Of all of Zombies movies, this is one that I really just have no interest in revisiting. And then last year for Netflix, Zombie uh, revisited the early 1960s television comedy, The Munsters. So if you're around my age and I'm uh, a Gen Xer, closer to 50 than to 40, and I remember all, you know watching in syndication both The Addams Family and The Munsters, I was always more of an Addams Family fan, but that's okay. So Zombie this time, again, creatively, and you have to give Zombie credit for trying something different. 
unfortunately, just trying something different doesn't mean it works. And with the Munster, Zombie fully embraces comedy. So this is intended to be almost a family-friendly comedy. Visually, it's a fantastic movie to look at. The, the set designs, the colors, uh, the color palette, it's, it's bright, it's fun. There's some really good performances there, particularly from Jeff Daniel Phillips um, as Herman Munster. And that's about all the good things I have to say about this particular movie. Uh, this, if and I have for the blog written out um, kind of a ranking of zombies films, and I very firmly stand by the choice of putting the monsters at the bottom of that list. Uh, zombie doesn't get comedy; he just doesn't get it. The movie isn't funny; it's uh, childish, immature, and stuff falls flat. It's essentially a meandering movie that has no conflict or any sort of plot that drives it. Stuff just sort of, sort of happens. It's almost like a collection of vignettes. It plays out very much like an origin story, and I don't know how many people are interested in the origin of uh, origins of the monsters. Uh, it's just a big swing and a miss. It, it, again, this, in my opinion, this is just uh, uh, a complete. You know, if if three from hell and and thirty one were steps backwards, this was a giant leap backwards for zombies as a filmmaker. Right, so at the start of the podcast, I uh, referenced a quote, and again, I'll apologize. I don't know who said this. I read it somewhere. It was someone who writes in the entertainment industry. But the quote to me really stood out is the idea that Rob Zombie is the best filmmaker to not ever make technically a really good movie. Even The Devil's Rejects has certainly a lot of flaws. Zombie relies a lot on, on kind of a shock and awe approach to filmmaking. That is, he you know, lets the camera linger for a long time on scenes of of, of torture, excessive violence, and, and really extreme moments. It works. Uh, it works the same way that Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left worked. Um, it, it's still a good movie, but it's not a perfect movie. When I step back and I think about, and again, I, I think Rob Zombie's a great horror filmmaker. I want to see him make more movies. And kind of my, my thesis or my, my hypothesis is, is that Rob Zombie would benefit from a couple of things as a filmmaker. He would really benefit from working with a producer who knows how to and wants to make a good, real horror movie, not someone working in a big studio who just wants to cash in while horror is hot uh, or wants to water down what Zombie wants to do. Someone who really wants to make a good horror movie, but who could rein in many of Zombie's kind of personal excesses, which I'll I'm going to kind of go over in this section. Zombie would also work, would do, would be best advised to work with someone, a good writer who has written out a good screenplay for him that he could work with. So the idea that Zombie tends to overindulge in certain excesses is to me a consistent problem that you see in all of his movies. And you see it in a few different ways. One of the ways in which you see it is not necessarily the casting uh, uh, for his characters, but who the characters are themselves. So regardless of what time period zombies movies seem to be set in, regardless of where they're supposed to be set in in the United States, what you tend to find in, in high volumes of Rob Zombie movies are a collection of degenerate hillbilly type of characters who say awful things, 
who do awful things. Most of his movies are, are staffed or cast with a collection of people, uh, a motley collection of individuals who aren't particularly likable in any sort of way. So the example I'll point out first is if you go to Halloween 2 that came out in 2009, it's supposed to be set in Illinois, Haddonfield, Illinois, and yet it still feels like you've been plummeted into this hillbilly hell. The scene I always think of is the scene involving the paramedics who have been tasked with uh, loading what you think is Michael Myers' deceased body into the back of an ambulance and, and just driving him to the morgue for an autopsy. This is the scene, of course, where they hit, uh, they, I believe they hit a cow and Michael Myers, of course, gets free. Uh, some of the jokes, the profanity, the uh, one scene in particular after the accident that goes on far longer than it needs to. Uh, it's it's not that it's offensive or you, you don't want to hear it. I'm, I'm not uh, sensitive. Vulgarity doesn't bother me. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work for the movie, for the setting, for the characters. Not everybody talks like that. Not everybody acts like that. And you, what you get the sense is, is that oftentimes Zombie makes creative choices that align more with what he thinks is cool. Uh, and he kind of likes that kind of trailer park trash aesthetics uh, and his music is, you know, he spider baby. He uh, recently worked with waxwork records to remaster and, and reissue the uh, movie. I think it's from 1967 that the, the B movie spider baby for a vinyl release. And that's the kind of aesthetic and, and backdrop that zombie likes. Uh, but it doesn't work for every setting and for every story or for every movie. You can see it as well in Halloween too, with even small things that pop up in the background. So I always think of in, in this movie and Halloween two, again, zombie is trying to do something quite interesting in part, a, a big chunk of the movie seems to want to focus on, on trauma and how people move on from awful events and how they cope with it. He does a good job of that with Daniel, Daniel uh, Harris's character. Uh, who's actually the more interesting and sympathetic character in the movie. He does a good job, uh, again, uh, with it with Sheriff Lee Brackett's character. He does a terrible job with it with Laurie Strode, who is extremely unsympathetic, who comes across as more as a, uh, uh, I'd say, kind of spoiled brat than someone suffering trauma. And there's a scene where it's in her bedroom, which is uh, you know, a mess, and she's got posters up on the wall, and one of the posters is of Charles Manson. And the thing that jumped into my head was, is this doesn't look like what, you know, a, a late teen, early twenties girl who just experienced trauma, how they would decorate the room. This looks like how Rob Zombie would decorate the room. And that's where having someone who could kind of rein zombie in and say, look, like we need to get into the headspace of this particular character. And it, it's not you, it's, you know, let's, let's figure out what this, this should look like. You, uh, some of the excesses uh, pop up in other movies as well. Uh, it's not just the violence. One of the other problems with zombie is, is again, knowing the same Rob Zombie needs to make a movie that's littered with jump scares and, and loud sounds, but a little bit of suspense uh, never hurts. And, and zombie tends to focus a lot on excessive violence at the expense of things like tension, atmosphere, suspense, and, and scares. And, you know, it hurts movies sometimes. It the approach might work for the devil's rejects, but does it work for a Halloween movie? Does it work for the Lords of Salem? Does it work for uh, 31? Uh, and again, this is where someone could kind of rein zombie in and say, we've got lots of this type of scenes, a lot of these types of scenes. Why don't we do this? And the way in which he writes his characters, again, this kind of motley collection of very unlikable people, 
it's hard to get much in the way of suspense when the characters that you're watching on screen don't elicit any sympathy, where they're unlikable and it's hard to empathize with them. Again, that's where working with a really good writer who could craft a, a decent character arc uh, and flesh out characters where they're not all uh, cast-offs from Spider-Baby or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre might work. You also see, I mean, to me, another recurring problem in Rob Zombie's movies is just narrative cohesion. Oftentimes he seems to kind of go off on tangents or riff on things because again, he thinks it's kind of cool and, and, and fun, but it doesn't fit with the movie that he's trying to make. That's why I like Lords of Salem because it's a much more consistent, cohesive movie from a narrative perspective. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, uh, tangents that feel like they're they're coming from another or a different movie, or kind of incongruent moods or, or scenes. But zombie storytelling again, I'll, I'll pick on Halloween too because there's two instances there that really jump out to me. One is uh, Malcolm McDowell's Doctor Loomis, who pretty much is an entirely different character from what you see in the first movie. And you could kind of nitpick a bit and talk about some of the retconning that goes on in the sequel, particularly around whether or not Dr. Loomis survived from the first movie. Uh, I'm not concerned about that. Horror movies kind of cheat all the time anyways, but McDowell's character in Halloween 2 is is almost a completely different person uh, from than from Halloween 1. And it, it doesn't logically flow from what the character experienced did saw from in the first movie. It just feels completely incongruent with everything you know. And by the finale of the movie, the character's sudden change of heart, Dr. Loomis's attempt to try and help Laurie Strode to help Sheriff Brackett is then inconsistent with everything in that particular movie that preceded it. It's just, it just doesn't work. Uh, and then there's again, much like House of a Thousand Corpses, Zombie again can't seem to decide on whether he's telling a grounded story about a serial killer or if he's introducing supernatural elements. Uh, on one hand, he's trying to tell a story, like I said earlier, about trauma and, and recovering from, from violence. But then he introduces the idea of psychic links uh, that he teases throughout Halloween 2 and then really doubles down on in the finale. It's something that comes out uh, of left field. It has nothing to do with the kind of psychoanalytic or Freudian imagery that he introduces early in the movie around uh, the white horse and this concept of uh, built-up inner rage. It just feels random. And unlike House of a Thousand Corpses, which can get a, a bit of a pass on it because, again, it's, it's tapping into what I would describe as surrealist 70s horror, Halloween 2 is, is not tapping into that style of filmmaking. It's it's completely wholly separate. And it's kind of a divergence in the storytelling that just doesn't work. And it's something that Zombie does a lot in his movies, where there just isn't character consistency, there isn't narrative consistency. And these are little problems that again, if Zombie worked with a crew of people who, again, a producer, a writer who could kind of rein in some of these tendencies. He knows his way behind a camera. Zombie knows what a good horror movie should look like. And the, the kind of storylines that he tends to you know, focus on are, are things that I think diehard horror fans, especially horror fans who like 70s horror, for example, are really going to dig and get into. Uh, so uh, the fact that the monsters didn't really... The monsters was a terrible movie. I appreciate Zombie took a risk. I would perhaps maybe he should move away from comedy or at least maybe turn his attention to dark comedy or satire. Uh, and I can't maybe work with a different or a better screenwriter, but um, 
I haven't given up on zombie. And, you know, I said this at the very start of the, the podcast. He's, I think he's a, a really good filmmaker. He's, he's got a lot of talent and he has an eye for the genre. Uh, but, you know, those are kind of the things that I see that kind of hinder or, or, or kneecap him a bit in terms of growing as a filmmaker. Thank you very much for joining me. That is that's the end of our, the fifth episode. And uh, as I mentioned at the outset, I've I've switched up locations where I'm filming or not filming, recording my podcast. I'm in a much more professional setting with better equipment uh, and actual real editing software. There's going to be a bit of a learning curve here, so I'm not going to promise that I'm going to do an episode every week until I kind of you know get a handle on how to use everything. But hopefully, there I'll continue to uh, release and produce stuff with a little more regularity and continue to kind of touch on subjects uh, and maybe even do some film reviews in the next episode. But again, if you've been rejoining me from after listening to the first four episodes, I appreciate you coming back and being patient. If you're just joining me for this episode, uh, if you didn't like the content or you disagree, that's okay. Uh, you can do your own podcast and have your own uh, take or opinion, but I do hope you come back because you never know the next episode, I might talk about something and we're on the same wavelength and it's something you want to hear about, but I do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And I look forward to, to coming back for episode six. <laughs>